Welcome to episode six of the Polis Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And today we're going to be talking about the first half or the first section of Walkable City by Jeff Speck. Right. And yeah, I'm excited about this. It's, it's a book that I think both of us are kind of fans of. Yeah, it's a book that, at least for me, was one of the first ones I picked up when I started to think about urbanism and urban planning and things. And uh, it's great. So do you have an overall takeaway from it? Like, what was the impact of it on you? Um, I think it made me think a lot about how I move through a city, uh, okay. both in a car and out of a car. Or I, I guess I should say both while using a car and while not using cars, because he does talk about public transit in this. It's not just like walking versus not walking. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so I think that I I didn't really think about street widths or block widths or or lengths, I should say, uh, and uh, and tree coverage and and just just those little things um, that make up sort of a you know your daily trajectory and and how it can impact everything about your life just getting from point a to point b and the the little things that go into it and how getting there makes is you know makes a big difference depending on how it's created yeah that's similar for me i think because it gave a lot more depth to kind of the intuitional understandings that i already had Mm. And, and i think really when you're coming to this book there are two reasons to read this book like obviously you're interested in cities and urbanism and urban planning and how how all of this is put together how the places that we live in affect us. But there are two kinds of things here. One is if you don't know about walkability, if you're not particularly interested in living in a walkable city, like one of my friends that we discussed before who only wants to drive a car everywhere, this will give you an understanding of why all of those people that you think are crazy who only want to live in Manhattan or something, why they are the way they are, what the arguments behind their thinking is. And the other side of it is if you find that you love living in a place like Paris or like Portland or something like that, and you love walkable places, but you don't really understand why you like it or like what is so intrinsically nice about it, this will flush out what you're picking up on just from your lived experience, right? Like that's, I think for both of us, we had lived experiences in walkable places that greatly impacted us. And for me, this really broke down a lot of the ideas around why I enjoyed that so much and why it improved my life in such substantial ways. Right. Yeah, that's you, you really hit the nail on the head there. I agree because I was rereading the foreword that he wrote and he was saying that this book is not meant to be the next great book on urban planning. It's not meant to be even mm. a planning book per se. It's just meant to be a book about the why, about you know why do walkable neighborhoods have these benefits? What brings the benefits? It's less of like a sort of a how-to book. Yeah. And and you're right. It, it verbalizes why we enjoy these places, which is great because it then allows you to think more. When you're able to sort of understand the why, then you're able to think about what's the problem with the places that don't have this level of walkability. Why are they not like that? And how can we then transform them into places that are better? Yeah, because I do think that a lot of people see this trend of a lot of millennials wanting to move into hyper density centers and things mm-hmm. like that. And they see it as kind of a trend. They see it as a right. kind of cultural thing. It's like hipsters are drawn to the skyscrapers kind of deal. But this does flush out that there are intrinsic reasons for this. It's not just a fad trend that happens to be rising up right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the structure of the book, just to look at it. So there's kind of a prologue, which is his general theory, where he walks through 
his general thinking around walkability. Then the next section, which is called why walkability, which to me is him kind of making the argument. He's really making the argument of like, this is why walkable places and walkable neighborhoods are so much better in so many respects than car only neighborhoods where you really need to own a car and drive it all the time. And then the last section is the 10 steps of walkability, which is most of the book. And that's kind of the heart of the book, which is him outlining step by step what things cities can change and what Mm -hmm. things impact this. So Mm -hmm. the first part, he's making the argument about why it matters. And the second part, he's really making the argument of how you change it and what impact these specific changes will have upon different cities. So today we're going to focus on that why part and that argument of why the walkability is better. In two weeks, we're going to kind of flesh out more of the explanations of how cities might reform and change to become more walkable. Yeah, this week will just be the section one, why walkability, and section two in two weeks, the 10 steps of walkability, just just to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, I think we should start off by talking about his... <laughs> wonderfully named a general theory of walkability. <laughs> yeah. Which is sort of like the small introductory section. So what did you what did you think of this section, John? I really like how he broke down the book because this really does very concisely in five or six pages just give you the entire premise of what he's talking about. Right. So if you just read the first five pages, like if you go to a bookstore and you're not sure if you want to read this book, you read the first five or six pages of this general theory and it does break down what he's talking about. It breaks down the incredibly powerful impact that he thinks walkability has on the places that we live. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, what I think is really cool about this section is he, he kind of says, like, we all know that there are benefits of walkability, but sort of, you know, why are they there and, and what segments of a city need to be there? What, like, aspects of a city need to be there in order for it to be walkable? And I think what he hammers here on a part that is not really talked about a lot, or it's not really... I guess, cited a lot as a main reason for sort of a walkable neighborhood or having walkable neighborhoods is sort of enjoyability of a city. And he uses Rome as an example. What I love that he does here is he talks about the fact that at first glance, you would not think that Rome is an incredibly walkable place. Like he says that it's horribly adaptive to pedestrians, that there are a bunch of places without sidewalks, a bunch of places where it's very loud and cars go by really fast. Yeah, by normal standards of what is safe for a pedestrian, it's just not great. No wheelchair right. ramps, no right. sidewalks in lots of places. Yeah, Lots of lots of hills and just, just all this, you know, he's like, this is not necessarily at first glance a great place for pedestrians for people to walk around. But that's okay because Rome as a whole is this amazing place. And it is amazing because it has a healthy and vibrant urban fabric and uses the word fabric, which I think is really apt. Like it's basically mm. you know, stitching together of multiple threads in order to get this sort of blanket of things. And if you've ever been to Rome, like you, you kind of get it. It definitely is just can be, can be deafening um, as a pedestrian walking around, but you want to continue to walk. Like that's the thing you, you know, you, you never need to get into a car. This is one of the core impressive things about the book. And it is a kind of vein that runs throughout the entire thing that these traditional measures that we use, the things that people think about as good for safety, that is not necessarily counterintuitively, that is not actually what makes an area nice and inviting and safe. And this is the start of where he reframes this entire thing around what really matters is some of the things that we will talk about, but is density is cars not going at high speeds is having shorter blocks, a lot of the different things that we'll talk about. But those traditional kind of city planner and road design 
things that we have focused on are not the kinds of things that actually improve life. And so you really, he does start right from the start shifting our thinking around that. Everything that we've done to try to improve safety actually reduces safety. And that's a huge mental shift that I had to go through when reading this. Right. You know, I kind of just want to quote from him here. He says that the general theory of walkability, in order for it to work, it has to satisfy four main conditions. It has to be useful, safe, comfortable, and interesting. And by useful, he means that most aspects of daily life are located close at hand and organized in a way that walking serves them well. Safe means that the street has been designed to give pedestrians a fighting chance against being hit by automobiles. And importantly, that they must not only be safe, but feel safe. And he says that's even tougher to satisfy. And then he also says that cities have to be comfortable, which means that buildings and landscapes shape urban streets into outdoor living rooms in contrast to wide open spaces, which usually fail to attract pedestrians. And interesting, his last one means that sidewalks are lined with unique buildings, with friendly faces, and that signs of humanity are all around. And he says, importantly, also that each of these aspects can't exist without the other. You, you really need all four in order to make a really good walkable place. And, and kind of like John, kind of like you were saying, you know, it's, it's really hard to quantify, I think, the, the last two, feeling being comfortable and being interesting. You know, you, you can definitely quantify being safe. And you can relatively quantify being useful, but you can't quantify a city being comfortable or a city being interesting. And those are much harder arguments to make. Yeah. Right, right, right. Exactly. And a lot of people wouldn't necessarily be thinking of it. That's kind of the issue that that he gets the heart here of why American cities and not just American cities, but, uh, but sort of the American style of cities has been so sort of detrimental over the past couple decades is that I think that they've really focused on simply moving people to and from their homes to their work to restaurants to movie theaters to whatever you know rather than actually being built as places to enjoy themselves yeah we've been treating our streets and our blocks as places to go from point a to point b rather than treating the journey to get there as as a public good as something that can improve our lives to that point i want to quote something from the prologue which he says in the absence of any larger vision or mandate city engineers Worshipping the twin gods of smooth traffic and ample parking have turned our downtowns into places that are easy to get to, but not worth arriving at. And that, I think, perfectly illustrates the point where Rome, everywhere around Rome, as we were talking about, is great to go through. Maybe not everywhere in the entire city, but (laughs) lots of parts of it are nice to walk through. Lots of parts of it you can walk through very easily. Mm -hmm. And by trying to transform our cities in the United States in particular into places that you can get into the city center easily. We've kind of ruined them and made them so that no one wants to go there. We've destroyed that comfort and we've destroyed the safety and we've, we've destroyed all four of these components. Right. And that is the core of the issue at hand. Right. Right. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to, do you want to walk? Do you want to explore your city? I think in our episode about sort of ideal cities, I remember saying something about why I loved Tokyo so much. And that was because it was one of the, it was the first place I, right, I went to outside of the US. And because of the way it's built and because it's so walkable, it always felt to me like I was discovering it. Like I was walking around and discovering the city and I wanted to yeah. discover. To me, when I travel to other places, you know, I want to go see the sights and I want to go see the foods and, and taste everything and like travel for all those sort of top level reasons. But something that I didn't understand why I love to travel until I started going to places with, with walkable cities is I realized, well, actually, I want to go and explore like the places around those areas. They, they themselves are also 
reasons to go visit places, you know, the neighborhoods, yeah. the houses, just to, just to look at things. And I've always felt that tourists in the United States, it's very much sort of, they have to kind of do it in sort of a checklist way because they have to go from point A to point B to point C. And there's no discovery in between those. It's just you hop in a car and you have to like drive there. Well, and in a lot of cases, there's nothing valuable to explore in between. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, And I, I think that's what, what Jeff Speck is getting at is that you don't want to go and explore. You don't want to go and, and, and just like look at things around your neighborhood, which is a shame. You you live there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, you take pride in your house. You take pride in the outside of your house. But why not also take pride in your neighborhood? And, and I'm not saying that, that there aren't neighborhoods that aren't walkable that are bad. Um, there are perfectly fine neighborhoods that, that are. But think about the way that you interact with that neighborhood and the way that you get around that neighborhood. It's rarely ever by foot yeah at the most it's going to be by bike which is fine but it's also really hard for for bicycles as well in a lot of places you know yeah i know um, lots of people back home in los angeles who would like to bike but they don't feel safe biking they feel like right. they're going to get hit right and you know that this goes to what you mentioned about feeling safe in that component of it that mm -hmm. you need to not only to be kind of safe but you need to feel safe right Right, exactly. So this is sort of the crux of the book. Yeah. These are the four aspects that a city needs to hit in order to make it quote unquote walkable. And so the next section is sort of the why, you know, why, yeah. the, if these are the four aspects, then why, why should we have a walkable city? Like what are the benefits from it? Right. And here he, after he gave that broad outline, he gets into this why and he's just, this is immediately as soon as I got to this part was when I knew that I would really like the book because he starts hammering home argument after argument concisely and clearly of why this was going to be important. And it's just this overwhelming tidal wave of <laughs> one argument after another. And it's, it's just, it's really well done. And he starts out with walking the urban advantage. And in here is when he really is talking about kind of the demographic changes and he's looking out at the future. And this is, this is another one of the, those things that radically changed my thinking about walkability and the economics around it and this is one of the things that i was most fascinated by that obviously as we've talked about and as most people know young people want to move into the city center young people want these walkable places this is a thing that has been observed everybody knows this this is why people are talking about gentrification and all of that sort of stuff because it's a very obvious phenomenon but the other aspect of it is that you have a huge number of elderly people who can't necessarily sustain their lives and don't necessarily need to sustain their lives in large mm -hmm. suburban homes. Mm -hmm. And those people are also funneling into city centers because they need to live in places where they can walk because they can't necessarily drive when they get to 75 or 80. And even if they can drive, they want to be in a place in close proximity to other people so that if something happens to them, mm -hmm. like their children aren't there, they don't need a three-bedroom house. So mm -hmm. if something happens to them, they want to have people close by. They want to mm -hmm. have emergency services close by. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the huge demand for walkable apartments and how much mm -hmm. that will rise in the future because not only are our cities growing because people are moving in from the countryside, as has been happening for a century, but these groups that traditionally would have been living in suburbs, families and middle-aged people, that is a shrinking proportion of our population. And growing proportions of our population are young, single urbanites who want to live in the city center and the elderly who are living alone or living with just one other person who also want to be moving into that situation. And it's not even that they necessarily want to be moving in, but they kind of have to 
they have to because they can't live out there. Yeah. Something that hit me when I was reading this for the first time is that if, if you put a senior, like a like a, a senior home, or if you put seniors in a da- the downtown mm. of a city and make it walkable to like everywhere they, they want to go and make it you know walkable for, for them as well. So make it, you know, easy for people, you know, either wheelchairs or with walkers, you essentially can remove the nursing home as a thing because right. nursing homes provide every amenity in close proximity to seniors. And the issue, like the reason why nursing homes, I, I think are a thing, it's to give them care, but it's also to give them access to sort of everyday things when they're not able to otherwise. And the only reason why they're not able to otherwise is because they have to live in suburbs and suburbs are only good for people who can drive and who can get around on their own. Well, and you see with nursing homes that the moment when people generally get moved into nursing homes is when they stop being able to drive. Right. That is exactly when that exactly. often happens. It, and yeah. it's because of exactly what you just said. Nursing homes are absolutely are 100% useful and they're and they and they're definitely needed, but for for those you know, for those self-sufficient seniors who really only the, their only issue is they can't get around in the suburbs because they have to drive or because they can't drive, I should say, then living in a downtown area uh, living in a walkable area, I don't even have to say downtown, living in a walkable area is really super advantageous um, and is just, it, it's it's freeing, it's liberating. You know, if you think about in the amount of money that you spend in a nursing home versus the amount of money that you could spend renting a place or buying a place downtown, um, the amount right. of autonomy that you have, the amount of sort of self-sufficiency, you know, a lot of people in nursing homes uh, are, have, been, have cited them as sort of lonely places where they don't feel necessarily useful. And I feel like a part of that could come from the fact that they don't feel that autonomy. I can only imagine when you lose the ability to do something you've done for years and years and years and society and you probably say like, no, I can't do this anymore. That that hits hard. You know, beyond even all of that, when you get moved into a nursing home, even if it's a pleasant place, it does sever you from the broader mm-hmm. society. It means right. that the elderly who are often the people who most like going to community centers, who are often the people that most like going to church, they are severed from that and they are no longer really able to participate that. If they already live in a neighborhood that is walkable, right. it's so much easier to maintain those sorts of connections. Right. And and do it on their own. You know, exactly. have that have that autonomy to do it because you don't have to arrange a ride to go from the nursing home to wherever you want. You know, you don't have to have like uh, arrange like a bus or have your family members pick you up or whatever. You can just go do it yourself. It, you know, if you're of course if you're able, but even then just being closer to all those other amenities means you really you can live out your life with much more dignity than before. And I'm, you know, I'm saying this based off sort of my limited experience with nursing homes. I'm sure there are great ones out there, but to me it feels like and and I think that's what sort of Jeff Speck was getting at is that living in a walkable area really provides so much more for for seniors. And I love that he brought this up because to me, when we talk about he he uses a portion of the of the section of the book to talk about how millennials and young urbanites want to live in cities, and they're the ones revitalizing cities, and uh, and there's now this push to move back there. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the sort of the common trope of like the person who lives in cities, quote unquote. Yeah, true. But. But that's only ever because we've designed cities for those people, those able-bodied young people who can afford or want to take the chance to live in the center of cities. And then we've always said, okay, well, the next step is to move out into the suburbs and then live the rest of our lives in a quiet suburb somewhere. And that is an issue because if you think about it, we've designed entire portions of our built environment with this one demographic group in mind. And granted, they're getting bigger, so you know we're going to have more denser downtowns as people as more and more money and prospects are pushed into it but 
we shouldn't do that. Designing a city to be walkable can improve the experience and the lives of more than just these young urbanite people. You know, better design for more people is just better in general. Well, and you know, the other thing about that is the fact that our society is increasingly stratified by age, which means that people only associate with people in their age group. Right. So you don't have a lot of young children being around a lot of elderly people. Right. If you look 100 years ago, that would have been very common. Mm-hmm. And so one of the exactly what you're describing, middle aged people with families move out to the suburbs, right? Younger people live in the cities, and the right. elderly get moved into nursing homes. And right. so they're all separated from each other. They're not mixing, they're not having the kind of cross generational transfer of knowledge and information and experience that you might have seen in previous generations. And, you know, I'm not sure of this, but this could definitely be a contributing factor to the increasing divergence of things like political beliefs and social mores and social expectations. Like when you no longer interact with certain groups of the population in the same way that segregation caused this sort of thing where people in a white community that didn't allow minorities were more likely to be afraid of minorities or more likely to dislike minorities and things like that. When you mixed the society, people got to know people of these other groups. They had these relationships. They understood their experience more and they were more able to function as a unified society. So I think you're right. Like by structurally separating these groups, there are these other kind of side Uh ramifications that Uh are preferably avoidable. Right. I think that's what this chapter, um, or this part of the chapter, the the walking the urban advantage sort of gets to is here he focuses a lot on what closeness does. Mm. Uh, and, and and I think that I think that's that's really sort of the core of it, because he talks, he definitely talks about seniors. Um, he talks about, you know, young people wanting to move to the centers of cities. But he also talks about the sort of the closeness of jobs and the amount of time and money that it takes to get to work and what yes. that means. And, and he makes he makes the argument that like, if you are spending a lot of money to get to work, and if time is money, and you're spending a lot of time to get to work, then you're spending both money and money, I should say, time and money, um, and uh, <laughs> and and that that and that that's unnecessary. That we don't need to do that. That if we were to just put people in walkable areas cl- close enough to their jobs that they could either walk there or bike there or take public transit that is hopefully cheap enough, then that literally takes money and puts it back into your pocket. Yeah, he has a great quote that sums this up. A recent EPA study found state by state an inverse relationship between vehicle travel and productivity. The more miles that people in a given state drive, the weaker it performs economically. Apparently, the data are beginning to support the city planner's bold contention that time wasted in traffic is unproductive. Uh And that's exactly it. If you're sitting in traffic, if you're spending time and money in transit, you're not doing anything else. And by definition, you are going to be less productive. That uh-huh. is a time suck on your life and your ability to do other valuable things. Uh-huh. And and other valuable things could simply mean daydreaming, reading a book, catching up with a friend, all stuff that you can yeah. do while walking, while taking public transit, while biking that doesn't, well, I mean, I guess you're not going to like read while biking. But the point is, is that you can do other things we focus so much on just either like work life and non-work life and then getting to and from those if you're driving your focus is on that act right it's it's on yeah. driving and if you if it takes you an hour if you're stuck in traffic you can have elevated stress levels you're you're focused so much on getting there that that's all this time that you could be spending doing something else that is better for you or more productive for you or more enjoyable for you <laughs> plus you're saving money by not by not having to necessarily have a car or pay for car insurance or pay for gas. Yeah. Or if you get into an accident, you know, both you have um, automobile costs plus potentially healthcare costs. 
all of that has gone away. There, you, you know, you're, you're reducing the amount of risk and the amount of sort of stress in your life. And that's the second part of this chapter is health. So I'm going to wait and talk about that uh, in a second. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, yeah, this this is in the, the last section of this chapter, which is the walkability dividend. And this, I think, as you're describing, like the arguments around personal and societal savings from walkability are, I think, the arguments that are really going to hit home against the critics and the skeptics around this, these sorts of things, because all of the stuff around safety is so counterintuitive and all of the stuff around comfort and happiness is so kind of amorphous that I think a lot of critics of these sorts of things don't really care. But the walkability dividend really lays out the savings to a society from having a more walkable place. And it uses the example of Portland. And so just to walk through a couple of the points that he makes in this, the first thing is, as we were talking about, so Portland has done a number of things over the last several decades to improve walkability and increase people's usage of bikes and all of that. And what they've found in a number of studies about Portland is that drivers there drive about 20% less than they would have if they hadn't started making these changes a few decades ago, which they estimate the cost of driving 20% less in terms of oil, in terms of gas insurance, wear and tear on your car. Yeah, gas, all of that is about a billion and a half dollars a year. And that's more personal savings for the drivers, right? In addition to this, because they're driving 20% less, each driver in the city or each person in the city spends 11 minutes less driving each day, which while that seems small, an aggregate for the entire city, 11 minutes a day Every day for every person, they estimate that that saves about the city about one point five million dollars in aggregate. And that's just that's just driving. That's just driving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that yeah, you're right. That that's not even talking about any of the upsides. This is just savings from not driving, right? Right. These savings, these three billion dollars from the savings on gas and things, and the savings on time, they estimate are largely spent locally because this additional money, instead of being spent on buying cars from another state and buying gasoline from another country, are being spent locally people are buying more food going to restaurants more like they've looked at a number of different industries and portland has a lot more restaurants per capita than almost any other city in the u.s they have a lot more other entertainment bowling alleys and things like that they have more strip clubs than almost anywhere else right so all of these savings that people have they're spending on different amenities in the community Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in addition to this the average family across the country spends about fourteen thousand dollars on transport and people in portland spend dramatically less than that And so when you combine all of this, he calls it the walkability dividend. And this is the argument that I think will really hit home with skeptics, because this is the economic impact that we're seeing, right? This is how the society can be richer and more productive and live better economically Mm -hmm. from moving toward a walkable environment. Right. I mean, I look at it this way. If I'm spending supposedly 30% of my income on my housing, right, and then the next biggest portion of my check goes towards transportation. And for a lot of people, transportation is larger than their housing expenses. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And that's what I mean. If you're spending like one third of your check on transportation, one third of it on housing, and then you only have a third left for everything else, you think if you could reduce the other two, or if you could just reduce the transportation one, you get to do more, you get to have more, you get to be be happier and healthier. Yeah. You just have more money to spend elsewhere, which I don't think anyone would object to. The other important piece of this is that it doesn't cost the government more. It's not like <laughs> using public transit is more expensive right. for the rest of society and then you're creating this externality. The government currently spends dramatically more on highways and roads in Uh cities than they do on 
any sort of public transit. It's like four or five to one in terms of public transit versus highways. And I, and I would argue that's even hiding some of the issues that come with building roads. Because if you think about all the real estate that we use to build major highways and roads that could be used instead for housing or shops, things that actually generate tax revenue. True. Local governments and state governments can make so much more that they could put back into the city. You know, it's just this big feedback loop. Yeah. Um, not, yeah. And that's not counting all the environmental and health costs that come with cars, which which we'll get into. But like, I, I guess that's the, you know, to, to your point about simply, you know, there's the amount of money that governments spend on the roads, but then there's the amount of money that they're not making because the roads are there. Right. There's that opportunity cost. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I, I, I guess what, what, for me, what Jeff Speck does with this section of the book so much so is he just puts sort of the final nail in, in the coffin on the debate of like, does creating walkable communities actually result in uh, um, a, a wealthier in wealthier uh, communities and that's and i and i think that the it's unequivocally yes like yeah there's just so many economic benefits to having walkable places and we even haven't even gotten into is other arguments which are things like just simply closeness of people to one another can lead to more innovation and just higher coordination between peoples like we talked about in the very first episode cities formed because people are more productive when they're around each other it makes right. obvious sense that the more people you have closer together mm-hmm. the more productive they're going to be mm-hmm. and you create these sort of isolating environments when you just put individual people in cars and i know that this kind of sounds sort of whimsical and wishy-washy like oh just out of nowhere people are going to strike up business deals because they've like bumped into each other on the street and i'll grant the argument that that most likely is not going to happen every single day but it absolutely happens sometimes well and even beyond that you maintain more relationships more closely if you live in a walkable environment you run into people you talk to them you make additional connections like i think everyone knows that the vast majority of us get most of our jobs from people that we know and we have met right Right. Right. And those sorts of relationships within your community, especially as more and more people move across country and move to new places that they haven't been to before. Like if you move to a new city and you have to live out in the suburbs, it's so much harder to meet people and network and mm-hmm. get into mm-hmm. the community mm-hmm. than it is if you walk down to your grocery store and you strike up random conversations. You right. find that you have mutual interest. I mean, I take the bus every single day to work and I see the same people on the bus every single day. And, right. you know, it's to the point where I can make eye contact with them and smile because they recognize me. I recognize them. I don't know their name, but if I wanted to, I could go over and just say hello and introduce myself. And that could blossom into something. You just never know. Like you could literally bump into someone. You could see somebody at the same cafe every day because people have these patterns that they go through. And as a perfect example of this in my life, so I moved to Korea several years ago. And one of the deciding factors in me moving to Korea was I met somebody in my neighborhood Starbucks who had lived there for several years and worked in the job I was looking to go there for. And he walked me through the whole process. We became good friends. When I eventually moved to China, he had moved to China by that point. And this random relationship that began because I happened to be in a Starbucks at the same time as this guy and we happened to strike up a conversation, like that sort of thing happens when you're around people. That sort of thing does not happen if you're in your house or in your car. Right. It's just not a thing. And so the more time that you spend around random people, the more likely you are to make some sort of connections with these random people. Right. And again, it's it's not so much that... Like, I, I guess I, I just want to be careful that we're not trying to paint a picture of like this happy-go-lucky world where everyone is just walking around and suddenly there are business deals left and right. Because obviously that's that's not necessarily going to happen, but it's about increasing the probability of that happening and that it is 
on top of all the other benefits, like this is just another sort of external benefit that can also lead to more productive, more ha- happy and healthy lives um, is, is if is just by genuine sort of human interaction, which could also turn into potentially a more productive life of, you know, job opportunities. And that just does not happen in places where cars are king. I mean, I, I, I get your point about kind of hedging with that. But I think anyone who's lived in a suburban environment uh, understands right. implicitly the idea that if you don't have to go to work, you can easily go days and days without really talking to another individual. You can live in your house and then you drive to a store, you buy mm-hmm. your stuff, you drive mm-hmm. home, you mm-hmm. never deal with anybody. And that's a very common experience for everyone, I think you don't have that same kind of thing in a walkable neighborhood because you just see people. Like even if you live in a not walkable neighborhood, if you take a walk around your not walkable neighborhood, then (laughs) you will run into people walking their dogs or jogging or something like that. You don't get that in your car. And it it, it is a fundamentally different thing. But moving on to the next section. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. I think we've kind of hammered that one to death. (laughs) I think we did. I think we did, definitely. The next section is on health. So the chapter is called Why Johnny Can't Walk. And it kind of, lays out what I think most people think of as the more obvious benefits of walking, namely, you know, it's exercise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So here there are kind of three broad points around the dangers of cars or the downsides of cars, I guess I should say. First one is obviously obesity. Everyone knows that no one gets as much exercise as you used to. People go to the gym more, but you don't walk to the store. Mm-hmm. You don't have as many manual labor jobs. Mm-hmm. People generally are not as active as they used to be. Mm-hmm. The second one is pollution. Obviously, cars emit a lot of stuff. It talks about the asthma explosion that we've seen over the last few decades. And this is largely connected to, again, the proliferation of cars and, the, and people that live in places that there is a lot more driving tend to have much higher rates of asthma. There's a very clear correlation between car usage and rates of asthma. Mm-hmm. The third one is accidents. We all know lots of people die from cars. Like a million and a half people around the world die every year from car accidents. Uh And that's an obvious downside. And the last one is driver stress, right? He makes a few interesting points. The driver stress one was, I think, the most interesting of these for me because it's the one that's least obvious. And one of the points that he makes in this is that there are a number of different studies in the U.S. and abroad that after you've been driving, you are something like three times more likely to have a heart attack than even somebody who was exercising like than any other kind of person and you're not doing anything that's physically strenuous right and it's just this kind of stressful environment that driving is yeah so i I imagine you have a number of points or a number of things that you took away from this chapter on the dangers and downsides of driving i'm actually kind of with you on this i think that except for the the last one they're all relatively obvious and obvious in that like yeah getting out of your car equals these sorts of health benefits yeah and so i don't necessarily think we need to go super in depth onto like why not driving equals more clean air yeah yeah you can just get that implicitly but i think the the important thing yeah. here for me is that and i don't know if he hammers on this that much but the important thing is uh this is this is health this is not just your own personal health this is societal health you know just the i think how creating a walkable environment can improve your health I think that's just so, so important. You know, it could be even more important than any of the other chapters because yeah. this co- this comes down to your ability to live. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Your initial need in life, your ability to live, just getting out of your car helps this. Yeah, like lots of people are dying. <laughs> right. Dying is not great. Yeah. If you, if you want to equate, what will keep people from dying? Oh, 
getting people out of their cars. It's proven, it's empirical, we just we just know it. So why don't we do it? We know that having a more car-centric place kills more people than a place without cars. Just car death is, is huge, um, both for pedestrians and for, for car collisions. But then there's the other externalities of it that also reduce death and improve quality of life. And it's just, right. I, I think I think that's just the important part here for me. You, you don't want to mess around with this stuff. This is your life. Not only can you extend your life by doing this, but you also save a bunch of money if you don't have any health issues, right? Or if you've reduced yeah. the amount of health issues that you have. Yeah, I, th- I think that, that that to me is just, I was just thinking like while reading it, like why why don't I do this? Why don't I just improve my life? And I think that there's so much emphasis too on, you know, this and this isn't in his book, but I feel like, there's just so much emphasis on the way you get healthy is by eating right and then going to the gym. And while those are good things, unless you're truly trying to bodybuild and and bulk up, like mm. the gym is a substitute for the lack of walking and the lack of physical mobility that we have. And yeah. the lack of walking is because we have not incentivized it in any way. People were healthy back in the day before cars, but they didn't go to gyms. They just right. walked around. No Their one went to gyms not... in the 50s. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. And he makes a number of points that drives this home. He has quite a bit of data in this chapter around all four parts of these in terms of obesity, in terms of asthma. These things have been very tightly correlated to car usage. Mm-hmm. If you look at places like New York, like with accidents, he talked about this in in detail and that one's perhaps useful to go into like new york had something like 2.5 car deaths per 100,000 i think it was something like that whereas the average for the country is like 15 or, or some, somewhere in that vicinity and even though there are a lot of cars in new york there are a lot of pedestrians in new york the percentage of people that are driving and how much they're driving every day is so much lower that you just don't have the kind of car deaths that you have in places that are not walkable mm-hmm. and right. This is shown in a number of different areas. And I think really the thing that he hammers home in this chapter, it's funny because it's really obvious, but it's also like you don't think about it, I guess, or I had never really internalized it, is the fact that no one has to die from transportation. Right. Right. Like before cars, people didn't die from horses, really. I mean, I guess you could have gotten thrown off of a horse. Very one, Like if you're walking and there are no cars around or you're biking and there are no cars around... There's no one dying. That's not a thing that happens. There are fewer people dying from obesity. There are fewer people dying from asthma. And there's no one dying from getting hit by a car or by crashing their car. Internalizing the idea that no one has to die from transportation is, I think, essential for this. Because really, we should be designing our society to eliminate this. Car accidents are the leading cause of death for people under 35. Right, right. I think what you're getting at here is that these deaths are the result of a design choice, not of anything natural. Like this is a human created epidemic. And if it is a human created epidemic, it can be solved by human creation. Yes, yes, you're right. Right. That's and I think that's I think that's kind of the takeaway from this chapter. Here are all these people dying. Here is why here are potential solutions. It's it's mind blowing because we're just so accustomed to car culture. We're so accustomed to communities with cars. Yeah. Uh, yeah, great. I think that's I think that's I, that, that's really all I wanted to say about this point because because you, you're right. We we can just solve it. We can at least mitigate it. Maybe not totally solve it. We can mitigate it heavily. Yeah, we can reduce the damage. Right. Totally. Cool. So do you want to move on to the the third portion of this section? Yes. What is the third portion? I, I forget. <laughs> it is sustainability. Ah, of course. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Right up your alley. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So so sustainability. What, what I like about Jeff's Hex writing, similar to the last two sections, is that he kind of just glosses over a little bit the, the argument that, hey, getting out of your car reduces the amount of carbon emissions. That's proven. We, we understand that. We, we get why car-centric communities and, and countries are very bad for you know global emissions. That's all said and done. We get it. We get it. But what I think is really interesting here is he compares and contrasts ideas of being green, quote unquote, and driving a car. Yeah. So I wanted to read one quote of his that is really apt here. And it has to do with driving. And he talks about like things that you think are green, you know, buying a green car, investing in wind energy, solar energy, uh, turning off your lights when you leave the room, like all these things mm. that are definitely good for the environment, pale in comparison to simply reducing the amount of miles that are driven. And I think this point here hammers it home in that even if you have the most efficient car in the world, we still designed our way into car-centric neighborhoods and car-centric communities. And those car-centric communities by themselves create more environmental damage than even switching over to the most efficient, amazing car. And, and, And so here's what he says. He says, the real problem with cars is not that they don't get enough miles per gallon. It's that they make it too easy for people to spread out encouraging forms of development that are inherently wasteful and damaging. The critical energy drain in a typical American suburb is not the Hummer in the driveway. It is everything else the Hummer makes possible. The oversized houses and irrigated yards, the network of new feeder roads and residential streets, the costly and inefficient outward expansion of the power grid, the duplicated stores and schools, the two-hour solo commutes. And I think this kind of gets to the heart of what John and I have actually been talking about a lot about really all of car-centric cities is that all of the externalities that come with prioritizing cars, they create these other terrible issues, Yeah, both health and wealth, but also now the environment. And that quote alone talks about everything, everything we've been talking yeah. about and says like the driver, pun intended, the driver of <laughs> uh-huh. these, of this bad design is, is the car. The only, the only reason why we are able to have neighborhoods that, you know, result and engender these sorts of drains on the economy, on on our on our health and on our environment, yeah. is because of the car. Yeah, it just promotes those communities. They could not exist without them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, what we have to do is not that. <laughs> yeah. We have to deprioritize the car in order to solve all of those issues. Uh, sorry, I attributed the quote about Hummers to Jeff Speck, and I want to just go back and, and say that it, Jeff Speck actually didn't say it. It was actually um, David Owen in Green Metropolis. Just wanted to make sure I uh, attributed the quote to the right person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, That's good to cool. Do. All right. Well, and in this chapter, just as you were saying, like I think it, again, illustrates like there is a clarity of thought in his writing and in his arguments that I, I think is valuable because one of the most important things when you're arguing about an issue, especially when you're t- trying to think about public policy, is to keep your eye on the prize. Stop mm-hmm. having side arguments and focus on what are you actually trying to accomplish. And mm. with this chapter that he's talking about the environment, the purpose is to reduce emissions, right? Like that's kind of when you're talking about reducing emissions, the purpose is to reduce emissions. And as you were saying, instead of looking at all of these small things that you can do to help the environment, you need to kind of look at where is the vast majority of your emissions coming from? Right. Where are the major problems? And instead of trying to improve those incrementally, 
try to figure out how can we structurally change that to actually solve the problem? Because the incremental change is never going to be sufficient. Right. So he talks about driving a Prius. He talks about trying to use low energy light bulbs and things like that. And how none of that, none of that will do anything compared to reducing your driving in half. Right. If you just drive half the amount, all of that will be wiped out, all of those benefits. Right. And what I like, sort of to your point, one of the examples that he uses is just the most ironic and most amazing example in that he says that the EPA wanted to put this new building oh, yeah, this in, is a good example. and they wanted to make it LEED certified, you know, LEED being the, uh, you know, the, the sort of the premier certification for a, uh, for having a building be incredibly environmentally friendly and very low emissions and just, and just like all around great. Right. And so the yeah. EPA wanted to do this in Kansas and they did. They created this brand new, amazing lead building. But the issue is that they didn't place it in a place that was walkable. They, they put it in a place that people had to drive, that their, their own employees had to drive to. In yeah. doing so, they actually increased the amount of emissions that the place then put out. Even though the building itself was more environmentally friendly, the fact that all of their employees had to get to this building by driving and by driving only, it still hurt the environment, arguably more than the the savings that the building had. And he lays this out very neatly because he says that the previous headquarters emitted 0.39 metric tons of carbon dioxide per month. And the transportation carbon emissions associated with all the new people coming to the new office that is super energy efficient and all of that is 1.08 metric tons per month. So you're talking about almost three times the emissions just for people to drive there. So like, even if the building wasn't there, just people getting there takes three times the emissions that the previous building did in total. And so any savings that you have are completely wiped out and negated Mm -hmm. and destroyed Mm -hmm. and you're digging the hole deeper. Mm -hmm. This is exactly the point. You are fighting against what you're trying to do you're mm-hmm. fighting against yourself mm-hmm. and it's incredibly destructive and you're masking it in this sort of environmentally saving or environmental saving scheme right you're, right you're right. saying like oh look look how great we are this is a lead certified building but people aren't understanding that this is actually doing more harm than good yeah it's just idiotic you know it we have we have to literally think about this in a different way you know he, he is so quotable in this chapter and i want to say something else he quotes ed glazier an economist who says that we are a destructive species and if you love nature stay away from it mm. the best means of protecting the environment is to live in the heart of a city and to me i've always viewed the benefits of good urban planning for sustainability in that sort of context in that in order for us to have these bounties of nature and in order for us to enjoy our natural environments, we want to have as little of a footprint as possible on the world. And prioritizing cars just engenders communities that will spread farther and farther out and that yeah. takes more and more land and literally has a bigger footprint. And so, you know, it just it just makes so much more sense for us to, to build closer and closer together and be, and be denser and do it in a way that is enjoyable, that isn't these 1980s hellscapes where right. people just hate the urban like the urban areas and they have to retreat to their beautiful, you know, bucolic suburbs. And I've also always found it interesting that suburban aesthetics in a lot of ways they try to hearken to nature mm. that they're like we're yeah. we're going to create these green meadow estates. It's going to feel like you're in the countryside, yeah. Right, exactly, but you're not. You're not in a countryside. You're in a suburb that is in fact taking place of the countryside that you want to enjoy. Right. And like, if, if you really want to live in the countryside, then you got to move to the countryside. You, you can't live in, in just a suburb because you're in fact hurting that environment that you pertain to love so much Yeah. by doing so. You know what I mean? 
I do. And so that's that's what this chapter really, really hit me with was just, man, we're not only doing things backwards, but we're visualizing it backwards. And our solutions, in a lot of ways, are not getting to the heart of the problem. Because of that, we're not making any progress. We're, in fact, making it worse. Yeah. And, and I think the core of the environmental argument is that we have to shift people's travel habits, right? That that's the biggest thing that will change kind of our environmental footprint with all of this stuff. And even though I think everyone understands if no one had a car, the environment would be better off. Like, I think it's key to take away the fact that he's not talking about, and this is a point that you always make about, we don't need Manhattan-style density. Right, right, exactly. He makes a point here that in terms of tracking people's travel habits, 50% of the benefit is seen from a very small change. So he, he has a quote here where he says, increasing density from two units per acre, so that's kind of like single family homes, to 20 units per acre results in about the same savings as an increase from 20 to 200, right? So that, that's saying increasing it from big houses on big lots to two-story apartments, some, some kind of quasi-dense mm-hmm. mm-hmm. places, not, not big city kind of things, but just small apartment buildings, and even some single-family homes and things like that scattered throughout the neighborhood, right. will have the same benefit as increasing from those kind of small apartment buildings to giant skyscrapers. Right, and right. that, I think, gets to the point that these things can be done, and they can be done relatively reasonably and relatively cheaply. I don't think anyone living in a neighborhood with a couple apartment buildings that are two or three stories is going to be like, oh, this is terrible. I have to live right in the heart of the city. Like, right. it, it, it is a relatively small change mm-hmm. that can have an enormous impact. Yeah, and in fact, when you think of like small, idyllic, rural towns of of old, the sort of the the ideal towns that I think suburbs are trying to pull from. Yeah, you know, back in the day, you know, especially here in the U.S., sort of old idyllic European towns that are small and quaint, they have a little market and all that, like things that I I see suburban developers try to sort of harken back to. Mm -hmm. Those old idyllic European towns that's what they looked like. They had, you know, every other house was maybe a single family home. And then there were a couple like apartment buildings or in-law units just placed around. And there are no, there are no single story houses in those areas. It's all two or three story buildings. But there were some sort of at the outskirts of the town. Sure. sure. Like, I guess, I guess. But it's much rarer. You're right. You're right. But the point is, is that these places that we like, like, I guess, what I see is that people have this idea of a place that they want to live. I, I'm I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of people who are not really into super dense places, you know, yeah. like like people who do not want to live in, in Manhattan, because I think a lot of people don't. And that's totally True. fine. That's True. that's great. I think that's what sort of Jeff Speck's getting at is that you don't have to live in Manhattan in order to help the environment to the way more so than buying your your nissan leaf or whatever yeah but what you do have to live in is places that people already kind of want to live in because to me that's what suburban developments are trying to advertise to me which is like i idyllic little european towns tuscan towns i see so many suburban developments like tuscany right yeah um, but if sure. you go to tuscany and you look at what tuscany is it is that it is a bunch of two to three story apartments mixed in with maybe a few tiny little um, uh, single family homes on the outskirts, maybe a few in the in, in the middle, but it's basically just a walkable, slightly dense area. And if you go there, it does not feel overwhelming. It's quiet. It's nice. It's idyllic. It's great. Yeah. And you get all of the other benefits that we already described from that sort of thing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It comes with all of that. Because I'm trying to think of how do we actually, this, this sort of mindset for me is coming from how do we actually transition the suburbs 
over into something that is better than them, right? Without having to go from uh, single family, super sprawl suburbs to Manhattan density. And I yeah. really think that there's a middle there. And, and I think what this chapter does, especially at the end of the chapter where he talks about you don't need to jump in that much space, is that people can make the transition very easily and it doesn't have to feel like they're living in Manhattan. Yeah. And, and it doesn't have to feel like they're living in a super dense place. It can actually be really, really nice. Well, and another thing that he makes a point of emphasizing throughout the book is like those sorts of neighborhoods, they're not going to be a no car zone, right? Like even right. if you have like purely walkable places that don't have any cars in right. like, the heart of Manhattan style cities, these right. kinds of places that have 20, 30 units per acre, those mm-hmm. kinds of places are going to be car optional. Like that's what he's going for, right? Uh-huh. He's proselytizing about a situation where you can live without a car, not you mm-hmm. must live without a car. So if you're mm-hmm. a family with three or four kids and you want to have a minivan so that you can get your toddlers to wherever you're taking them obviously getting on a bus with two or three strollers is outrageous cars are going to be ideal for that situation but that doesn't mean like just because you want to have a car does not mean you have to have super sprawling suburbs like there is a way to get the benefits of a walkable area while having access to cars and kind of that sort of personalized transit like those are not mutually exclusive yeah, as you know, for, for the listeners, like as you are reading the book, I'm sure like you notice there is no part where he talks about why cars should go away completely. Yeah, true. And we've said multiple times on the show, like we're not advocating for cities that are carless. I, I, I you know, there there might be yeah. some portions of cities that should be carless, but I, I think like it's it's incredibly important for cars to continue to be part of the urban fabric. They just can't be the dominant part of the urban fabric. And that's and that's really what we're getting at. And where all these benefits come from is when you actually make that shift and you say, we're not going to make cars the center of our urban spaces and prioritize them. Yeah, because urban spaces are for people living there. They're not (laughs) so much for the cars, yeah. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So that pretty much sums up the first section of the book. And Mm -hmm. this, as we said, is kind of where he makes the arguments. He explains the why of walkability. He explains why Mm -hmm. all of this is so valuable. In the next part, the part that we're going to talk about in the next show, he breaks down what Ben described before, the useful walk, the safe walk, the interesting walk, and the comfortable walk. Mm -hmm. And he really talks about the how, how we actually get our cities and reform the places that we live into places that we want to live and into places that we can walk and can enjoy them in that way. Car optional. Yes, car optional. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I am most excited just as, as a little teaser to talk about the parking section of the useful walk. Because I think there are so many interesting aspects of all of these arguments, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about parking. Because I think it will also relate back to our last episode where we talked about the autonomous vehicles and parking and all of that. Right, right. Yeah. That's what's so much fun about this book is that I think it points out all the, the unintuitive and intuitive aspects of urban planning and what we've, what we've done and why under the surface, oh, wait, this is actually a bad idea. Yeah, um, but why? Exactly. But we wouldn't th- we wouldn't think of it in any way other than that. But yeah, cool. I'm I'm excited about it too. Looking forward to the next episode. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah. Sounds great. Cool. Okay. So with that, let's end let's end the episode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that is about it for this episode. And you can find our show notes as always at subjectradio.com/slash/polis/slash/006. Uh, and any links to anything we talked about, maybe some details about the book. And I guess I will talk to you in two weeks, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right, man. Have a good one. All right, you too. Bye. 
shoot, let me find it. Uh, hold on. Sorry, we can just cut. We can just cut this part out. I yeah. just had it, and now I. Uh... Well done, man. Well done. Yeah, I know. I know. How did I do that? 